Hey there, it's Joan Green, and you are listening to Navigating Two Worlds, where we are blessed to spend time learning about the complexities of interracial families. This show is designed to support an incredible community of women in relationships to black men who love deeply and are driven to make a positive impact within their homes and beyond, as well as to open a dialogue for others who may want a greater understanding of privilege and racial bias, especially in regards to how it affects the family dynamic. We do all of this through conversation, education, and love. So let's get started. Hey there, and welcome back. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to my guest on this episode of our podcast, Dr. Kristen Donnelly. Dr. Kristen is one of the good doctors at Abbey Research. She's a TED Talk speaker and a self-described empathy enthusiast. She's also super fun. Dr. Kristen has lived her life with a purpose and mission to unapologetically create positive impact in the world around her, and she brings an incredibly unique perspective about how we can all do human just a little bit better. So welcome, Kristen. Thanks for being here. Oh, gracious. Thanks so much for having me. That's so such an honor. Absolutely. We appreciate it as well. So why don't we just jump right in? I'd love to begin with your story, a little background about you, your family, and your work, and kind of what makes you the woman you are today. Oh, I'd be happy to. I always love talking about my family. Of course. The the first (laughs) thing that I always say is that we're a family with a mission statement. So this is maybe a little bit unique uh, in that we own a family business and, and it's a multinational manufacturing entity that may seem like empathy doesn't really fit. And I'll get into all of that. But at the core of who we are as a family is the mission statement to impact lives and create wealth. And wealth is a holistic concept. It's economic and emotional, financial, spiritual, social, internal. The question that drives me and my family every day and everything we do is what how can we, what about us and what about the choices that we make or the privilege that we have, can we leverage for the privilege of others or to serve somebody else? And this has driven everything. So even when I was young, you know, when people would ask me when I was seven, eight, nine years old, what I wanted to do, the answer was change the world. And people would laugh and pat me on the head and say, right, like, that's adorable. And like the people that I trust that are still in my life are the ones that took that totally seriously. And they were like, well, yeah, of course you're going to fantastic. How can I help? And I love asking them now, like, what did you see when I was like 12 and said that? And they're like, we saw that you were going to do it. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That determination for sure. I'm sure. And it's, it's bled into everything. So I started, uh, I come from a theater passion background. My brother was the sports child and I was the theater and music child and I, we both learned teamwork that way. We both learned service that way. We both learned a lot of things that way. But also that when I was seven years old, my father bought a manufacturing facility in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is incredibly under-resourced and has been since just after World War II. And even before then, it wasn't exactly a pocket of equity, but it was. it's definitely been since the manufacturing jobs left Philadelphia, especially in the textile industry, since after World War II, you know, middle of the 1960s. And the idea was to bring no-skill manufacturing jobs back to the neighborhood, figuring that there should be jobs for people who can just show up sober every day on time and want to learn on the job. And so we created them. 
And I was a kid watching my dad do all of the things that are required in that. It was asking the question of, okay, well, if someone only has a fifth grade reading education, how do we as management help them understand what a like the measurements for making this die is? And how do we adjust in order to serve? How do I enter into the lives of these people? And even before trauma-informed care was a thing, we were kind of doing it. Because the question was never, what is wrong with you? But always, what happened to you? What's going on in your life? How can you bring your false self to work? Because everybody does all the time. There's, there's no... The myth that we ever compartmentalized was always a bit of a lie and was, you know, fed, put up by the patriarchy (laughs) that designed this whole system for for men who were married to stay at home wives, that they could come to work and leave all their their home problems at home, quote unquote. But like no one ever really did. That's not how humans work. And so we created a system, you know, my dad for a long time, then my brother came along and, and uh, started as the foreman, decided college wasn't going to give him as much of a education as working on the job was. So he skipped college and, and went right straight into working to the factory. Whereas I knew my way to fulfill that calling, my way to fulfill our mission statement to impact lives and create wealth was a lot more with words and ideas. And so I went to college and I have two master's degrees and I have a PhD And my company, my division of the family company now is about empathy education through workshops and keynotes and podcasts and YouTube channels. And how can we teach you to be a better human? And I do in a lot of ways from the fundamental place, the same work my brother does with our employees. We just look completely different because when you have a mission statement that is that to us simple and fundamental, how you make it work can be really flexible to go with the calling skills and talents of the individual family member but nothing about our mission has changed. No, I love that. You're so grounded in that. And I think that's a huge thing for people to take away is how you do it is going to be what, you know, what is genuine to you, what is authentic to you and what is your true self, but you're, but you're never varying from your roots, from that mission statement, knowing that that is the impact that you've always tried to make. And I, I also love that not everybody has to go to college, but some people thrive in that environment. And it's um, it's a big lesson for for those out there, my, my children, I have three of them and they're very, all of them have taken a completely different path, all still very grounded in, you know, who they are and what they're meant to do and, and making impact. So I love, I love that that's where you come from, Kristen. That's fantastic. Um, and so the factory is still up and running today. Yes. Yes. I'm sitting in it right now. In oh, fact, fantastic. That's awesome. That is we primarily make dyes and colorants for the pharmaceutical diagnostic and industrial spaces. So for instance, uh, if you have in your life ever gone to the eye doctor and you've cried that yellow dye that they do for the glaucoma test, that's called fluorescein. And we're the only ones in the United States that make that. No, that's crazy. So Um, lots of things like that. And we have a couple other divisions. I think there's six divisions, including a couple real estate things right now. We're big in diversification, but I'll admit the jump from manufacturing to speaking and educating was probably the the biggest leap we've made. Everything else has been widgets. I'm the first one to do ideas. Right. And I love that you've stepped out of that kind of comfort zone of of the widgets and and of that. I will also say um, thank you to your family because everything that you're doing around pharmaceuticals and the medical field is, is in its own way 
helping society at large, especially as we're coming through the pandemic and all of this. So I'm sure um, your family is definitely the, the team of American heroes that we speak so much about. So thank you for all the work that you guys do. Oh, it's our pleasure. Our, our employees deserve all the credit. They showed up every day in the pandemic and we kept everything open the whole time. They are oh, incredible. Yep. Fantastic. Such great work. I love it. So, so we don't, I know what has led you to this path. Why don't you tell, um, tell me a little bit about how you founded Abbey Research. I know that it is a division of your family business, but how, how did that come after you're going through school and you've got your PhD and your master's? Um, what, what was that first step that said, okay, now I'm going to get out there and do this? Such a great question. And first of all, for anybody who's not in academia or loves anybody in academia, let me let you know that the higher ed system is very toxic. (laughs) And the way that it demands that it feeds itself. And by that, I mean, so I do this massive PhD research. It's potentially groundbreaking, which I like to think that mine particularly was could have really helped people. I could go on and do a a TED talk about it. I could do a speaking tour. I could do all these things, but that won't get me a job. What will get me a job is publishing in very specific journals that only other academics can read. And we just keep perpetuating this internal knowledge cycle. And it's bothered me for a really long time. It's incredibly privileged. It, it, um, you know, the wage disparities are huge. The gatekeeping to research is huge. We're not asking, you know, diverse questions, all these kind of other things. Really, since I started digging into higher ed, probably in my mid 20s and thinking that that was my calling, I really just kept getting frustrated <laughs> and kept thinking like, this is not in alignment with my calling and what I want to do as a researcher and an educator. I just can't do it within these spaces. So I was saying that to my PhD mentor, an incredible gentleman named Dr. John Brewer, who has been doing public sociology in the UK and Northern Ireland in particular for ages. And his reaction was just to be very, like, he didn't laugh it off. He didn't say anything. He goes, okay, great. So start your own agency. Wow. And I was like, I linked at him and I was like, what do you mean start my own agency? And he's like, well, you have a family business. So you have a physical office already. Like you have some things already. You have a, you have business knowledge. You've been doing all of this. What if instead of selling widgets, you sold ideas and you could serve the, the kind of the smaller nonprofits and organizations that can't afford big experts with a whole lot of money and kind of all this other stuff. And what would it look like to do that? And that was the evolutionary point. So I went to my family and I said, this is what I think is, is I think the next step is they were like, that sounds great. And exactly what you're called to. And so I started it and haltingly without a business plan, (laughs) without an idea, without anything. (laughs) um, And I spent a long time throwing spaghetti at the wall. And then a year later, my best friend graduated from the same university I did. She was just a year behind me doing her PhD and she moved home and we were like, okay, well, Aaron knows me the best. Our brains work completely differently, but really similarly. Um, And she's on board with this vision. Let's hire her. And so we over from 2017 to, I would say this past year, which is 2021, it was a lot of figuring out how do we live out that mission statement? How do we impact lives and, and create wealth in what we are particularly talented at, in what we are specifically gifted at? What is our sweet spot? What do we have fun doing? There was a bunch of services that we were offering for a little while that we didn't have any fun doing. 
And I was like, well, why are we doing things that aren't fun when we can be doing things that are fun? <laughs> this is, this is simple. Um, and that's how we kind of, this, it's an evolution. It's definitely been an evolution, but at the core of all of it was we kept coming back and asking ourselves, A, what, what legitimately fires us up, what feels in alignment, what brings us joy and B, how can we serve? And if we had a subsidiary mission statement at Abbey Research, it would be Parker Palmer's definition of calling, which is that your deepest passion meets the world's deepest need. And Aaron's and my deepest passion is helping people understand people different than them. Which is kind of where we connect, I think, at at this point, right? Yep. Yep. And obviously the world needs it. So that's where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm I'm excited to ask you some questions about about that piece. But I also have often heard you say, and in our previous conversations before this, as well as just on different um, platforms that I've I've listened to and read, you talk about doing human better. Mm. What does that mean to you? And um, what are a couple things that each of us can do in in our world? You know, to create a higher level of self awareness and just do that be better humans? Such a great question. The first thing is to be gentle with yourself. That at most points in your life, you're doing the best you can. You can always do better, but at that moment, you're doing the best you can. And those two things are not mutually exclusive entities. So first of all, I don't ever believe that we change through shame or statistics, whether that's external or internal. We change through stories and relationships, and that's both external and internal. You change through the relationship with yourself, through relationships with other people, through stories that you've encountered, through things that that you've done. So the very first step is to be gentle with yourself. The second step is to hold yourself accountable. And those two things, the marriage of those two things are often where we get this deeper human. Understanding that you can't know everything. Good Lord, you can't. You're not supposed to. We are supposed to be doing life together. And lifelong learners, right? Just continually looking for more and learning more for sure. So get used to changing your mind. Get used to saying I was wrong. Get used to saying I'm sorry. All of those kind of things that move us. You know, there's, I'm pausing here. I'm like talking with my hands so much. You would see the transition in my hands. You can't, this is not a visual medium, but we talk a lot about the tribalism of partisan politics and then at the same breath say humans are meant to be like communal creatures. And that has to be confusing for a lot of people. So one of the ways to do tribal that is, or exclusionary or kind of, you know, the, the unhealthy edge of this is to only surround yourself with people that you agree with that are, you know, potentially less intelligent than, than you are. Um, and will just keep confirming things you already believe about the world. That's the downside of community. That's the negative toxic part of communal life. The healthy, beautiful thing that we're actually created to do is to surround, surround ourselves with people that we both agree and disagree with. And that should be every human, that there are pieces we agree with them on and pieces we disagree with them on just about. Because even if you're like, I don't agree with you on on faith systems or politics or anything else, we still root for the same baseball team. Or we both really believe that Old Navy is a great place to get close. (laughs) Like there's usually some point of, of of common intersection. So you find those people. And then I always recommend definitely finding people that are smarter than you. And 
not necessarily about, you know, like you can be the smartest person in the room about one topic, but you shouldn't be about everyone kind of thing and finding that balance. And that starts with being gentle with yourself and holding yourself accountable, which then you can then extend to everybody else, be gentle with them and hold them accountable. And that alchemy, as we do all of those things, which are perpetual learning processes, is how we do deeper humanity. It is. And I think the other piece of that is when you're when you're in those situations, asking the questions that may create a little bit of discomfort. And because I think sometimes it helps people dig deep and come up with an answer that they, and they may be smarter than you in that area and you don't even know it. But I think sometimes we're afraid to ask those questions, Kristen, how do you guide people to, to, to do the tough work? Um, And I know sometimes you preface your own conversations that way, that this is not going to be necessarily sweet and happy, but we're going to get to learn something about each other. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my big tips. I'm a huge fan of uh, laying things out there and saying them as they are. Yeah. We are all too tired and too old to play games with other people's (laughs) hearts. That's so true. And I mean, I think four-year-olds are too tired and too old to play games with other people's hearts. Like this isn't, we are as a society too tired to do that anymore. And I, yes, when I do it professionally, when I teach workshops or give keynotes and I'm talking about some of the more difficult things, I usually open, like, as you, as you alluded to, I say, Hey guys, you're going to offend somebody today. Somebody's going to offend you. I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. That's how this is going to work. But what we're all going to do is at value in this room, in this space that I am holding for us, we're going to agree that everyone's doing their best and has good intentions. I love that. And And if you're not in a place where you can do that, that's valid. There's a lot of times in my life I haven't been in a place where I can hold other people with grace. The first exercise we're going to do is involving everybody having their eyes closed. You can please feel free to leave and I will be 0% upset. That's so great. And that, that lets people look inside and make their own decision in that moment if they're ready for this conversation and this dialogue. So If they're ready for it or not. And then in personal life, I mean, some of it is just that I'm, I have the reputation where I'm going to say the thing. Um, but often asking questions is a little bit harder in real life if you haven't done some other stuff first. So I recommend things like pushing back on jokes or like right now, as, as Joan and I are talking, it's the end of July. And very recently the Cleveland baseball team changed its name. They did. And there are lots of people who think that was dumb and unnecessary. And I will tell you from listening to lots of indigenous voices over the last several years, it is the farthest thing from dumb and unnecessary. It's so, it's so important to that population and should therefore be important to all of us. So when you're in a room and people are like, that's ridiculous, blah, 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 find your 30 seconds of bravery and say, actually, I agree with it. I think it's a great idea. So hard, Kristen, sometimes for people to do. And I, I love that example. My husband and I were just talking about it as well. And um, and there was a lot of thought around that change and people took mm-hmm. a lot of time to figure out what is the right thing to do. And you're right. It's so important to that segment of our population. How do we, and you, you talked about holding each other's hearts, you know, how do we not hold their hearts gently in our hands and remember that? So I love that as an analogy. When you talk about the community that I serve, um, we're, we're really focusing on, for the most part, white women who are in relationships with African-American black men. Um, and I would love to kind of know what you think are the most important things for white women. And, and overall, I guess, in any interracial relationship that we might be in to 
start the process of uncovering our own racial biases or understanding our own privileges or, you know, making like taking care of each other's hearts in a little different way. Well, why don't you ask us, you know, a more difficult question, Joan? That one's really simple. Well, come on um, now. You're the expert. <laughs> okay. So, no, I love it. I love it. This is what I spend my life doing. So let's let's back up a little bit. First of all, okay. everybody is in a cross-cultural marriage. That's true. That's Every true. single human being. explain that just a little bit because I, I understand that. So everybody grew up in a specific alchemy of their own lives. And this is one of my soapboxes about our use of the word diversity. In the United States, especially, and I'll be honest, every country I've ever worked in, we've taken diversity and flattened it to mean just the number of white people and the number of black people in a room together. You are correct. And that is not the definition of diversity. In the definition of diversity, and like you take the actual physical word, like you and I are in in a diverse relationship right now. We have different ways of seeing the world, different experiences, different things. Sure, we're both white women, but we're of a different generation. We're of a different, you know, education thing. Uh, My husband is Northern Irish, and so that's my cross-cultural intersection. Your husband is African-American, and that's your cross-cultural intersection. But you and I are having a diverse conversation. So every room that you walk into is already diverse. Love that. Oh, my goodness. Say that again. I love that. Every room you walk into is already diverse. So your goal should not necessarily be diversity. It should always be inclusivity. And I think in our marriages, it's the same. So I will talk about my marriage because I know how to talk about it. And I don't know how to talk about other people's marriages because that's why I didn't get my therapy degree. Um, <laughs> but my my husband and I, on paper, I mean, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say on paper. When you see us out and about, We are both white. We are both, we present as middle class. We, if you hear us talking, we are both very educated. We are both very curious. But the other thing you'll hear when we're talking is that he's got an accent. You're not going to be able to quite place, but you're going to guess Irish or Australian. I am going to have a flat middle, mid-Atlantic accent, but I'm going to throw in words like y'all and fixin' to and, uh, and dander and what's the crack and like all of these kind of things because I've lived all over the place. So already, as you listen to us, you're going to be like, okay, what's going on here? Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And then on paper, I'm going to tell you our, I'm going to tell you some things. So I was raised in this, in suburban America in the eighties and nineties to a middle-class business owning Protestant household in a country where your baptism certificate doesn't ever matter. My husband was raised in the seventies, eighties, and nineties to a working class going into middle-class family with, I only have one sibling. He has four during a armed conflict in his country, in a country where your baptismal certificate means everything. Right. He grew up in a rural, in the, in suburbs, quote unquote, but it's rural compared to what we would say in America. I grew up in a very idyllic American childhood. I joke all the time. You could have found me on a sitcom. Like, you know, it was very, <laughs> it was very kind of stereotypical American. And he grew up understanding oppression completely differently because he was Catholic in Northern Ireland, born to two Catholics in Northern Ireland in the midst of Northern Ireland figuring out its armed conflict. It's crazy. So I just those just those elements, you can imagine that our marriage is cross-cultural. Agreed. We also have different hobbies. My husband is obsessed with space. I do not understand this, but he has dragged me to every single NASA museum and I will go. I 
I am obsessed with romance novels and God bless him. He asks me every book I'm reading and what it brings me joy. All right. Does that translate to the Hallmark channel or not so much? Oh, for sure. Oh no. Okay. I watch Hallmark movies. We actually cover them and review them on our YouTube channel and podcast. That's my girl. We are kindred spirits. <laughs> Absolutely. So I say all of this because in this conversation, the way that you introduced it, Joan, my husband and I wouldn't cl- classify necessarily as part of your audience. Absolutely. And my contention is that we actually are. Agreed. So the first step to all of this is to learn and understand your own intersections. And what I mean by that is based on the theory of intersectionality that Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw coined in the late 80s to explain that nobody is one thing at once and that all of the different ways that we are human and the different things about us combine to make a very specific social experience. And those social experiences come with oppression or privilege. And how those all intersect make us who we are. For example, let's say that you are somebody who is on the neurodivergent spectrum. That is the way our society has set itself up, is most likely an oppression of some fashion. If your body doesn't work the way society wants it to, or if you are physically bigger than society wants you to be, If you grew up in a farming town, but you're the kid that built robots in your garage, there's oppression and privileging, there's othering and centering, and these are all really, really rich concepts. And the first thing you have to do is figure out where you are in all of those things. So if you're a white person in the United States, the very first step is to own your whiteness. Get used to calling yourself white. Get used to the idea that white is a race, which means it's a social construct. It has nothing to do with anything that really matters, except that we've assigned it meaning. So get used to it. Realize that you were taught a very specific history in school because we all were. We We were were all taught a very specific history to uphold whiteness as power and goodness and greatness. I mean, gosh, even the Olympics, the modern Olympics were started as an example of Aryan superiority. Like it's baked into everything. So recognize that. And once you learn that, And you start to unpack your own stuff without shame or guilt. You were doing the best you could. Breathe into yourself, friends. That can lead to some other things. Recognize, you know, there's there's lots of different lots of different intersections. I always say, like, I'm a I'm a middle I'm an upper middle class, like overeducated white lady in a great heterosexual cisgendered emotionally healthy marriage with my parents are together. I grew up in an emotionally supportive household. I have all of these things. And I also happen to be fat. Oh, Krista. You know, and, it's, funny. it's kind of your elevator speech introduction. Like having that in your back pocket is something I think everybody should have. I, I don't even have an idea of how I would describe myself in that manner, but I am going to do that as soon as we're done because I, I love that you've thought that through. That's yeah, fantastic. And then- I mean, part of it's my job and part of it is that living outside of America, I'll just be really honest, forces you to know some of those things. So one of my privileges is doing my PhD in a place where I was always the other. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes actually gave me privilege. And sometimes it gave me oppression and what that meant. And that's messy. And anybody who wants me to unpack that further, I'm happy to talk about it. But then the next step after you kind of figure out you know, what those intersections are is my biggest tip is pick one and research more. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know a lot about the deaf community in the United States, so I'm trying to learn a lot right now. I'm talking, you know, talking to people, watching documentaries, reading memoirs, following people on social media that are in that population, that are talking about being in that population. Pick a thing. And then when you feel comfortable that like you have some sort of basic knowledge, you know the language of that thing, pick another thing. Right. Just keep going. I love that. And it's, I think I shared with you when we talked before our, our interview here today, um, one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou is, you know, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I think you're speaking right to that. Like pick a thing, learn more about it, know better, then start doing better. And then pick another thing and learn more about it and know better than do better. And I just find that to be a very easy step-by-step. -step. It's not easy but it's a very clear step-by-step -step process that everybody can embrace. Completely. I said in my first TEDx that being a deeper human is so incredibly simple. It's really hard, but it's so simple. You right. just listen more. Right. right. And imagine if everybody were a deeper human, we're all made, God graced us with the ability to be that. And that's what his vision was. So I think, you know, we all have the opportunity. It's whether we take it and act on it right away. Correct. So true. So um, I I actually, you just kind of led to, if if anybody would like to talk about the other, um, between privilege and oppression, being the other person, I think that that would be a great conversation for maybe another chat with you. Um, so hang on to that for me, because I, I definitely want to learn more about that. And I know that our listeners would as well. In the meantime, you are such a positive force in the community. And I am incredibly grateful for all the work that you do and all the insight that you share. Would you like to share with us where the listeners can find you, where we can stay in touch with you and all those things? I'd be honored. So the first thing is that we're on every social media platform except TikTok. <laughs> so <a> girl. <laughs> if you, if you are on one of those, we are at Abby Research and you spell Abby with an E. So A-B-B-E-Y Research. We're everywhere. Uh, we're also, we have a podcast that comes out three times a week that has these kind of conversations. It's called the culture cast with the good doctors. You can find us there. And we have a YouTube channel that posts even more frequently that is also at Abbey research. And we have conversations about centering, othering, privilege, oppression, Hallmark movies, Bridgerton, <laughs> oh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We have all of those conversations everywhere we are because we believe deeply in analyzing culture, both popped and lived, to help all of us build our empathy and cultivate inclusivity. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. And um, thank you for everybody for joining us and meeting Dr. Kristen with us. So if you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, um, and to hear some inspiring and maybe some more eye-opening stories, you can take a listen to some of the other episodes on this podcast. Like us, leave a comment, of course. You can also visit our website at Together We Love with Joan Green, and Instagram is togetherwelove.jmg. And I am feeling very honored and blessed that you are here, Kristen, and thank you again. I know that we will talk again soon. Really appreciate your time. It was an honor and a privilege. Thanks so much, Joan. All right. Take care. Thanks again for joining in another episode of Navigating Two Worlds. And here are our takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Kristen Donnelly. It was fire. It was awesome. And I want to share a few things with you. So number one, a few tips that she left us to do human better. Be gentle with yourself. Remember, you're usually doing the best you can. You can always do better. 
but in the moment, you are doing the best that you can. We change through stories and relationships with ourselves and others. Also, hold yourself accountable. Change your mind. Learn. Be open. The marriage of these two things are where we get this deeper human. We're supposed to be doing life together and to be lifelong learners. And be sure to surround yourself with others who lift you up, who are smarter than you, who you agree with and disagree with, who know more about you than and certain things. Remove the unhealthy tribal edge. Don't surround yourself with only people who tell you you are always right. Number two, sometimes asking the tough questions can be difficult, especially if you haven't done the other things. So a small example is pushing back on jokes that aren't appropriate, standing up for what's right, finding your three, 30 seconds of bravery to, to let people know what, what you expect from them. Number three, every room that you walk into is always a diverse situation by the nature and definition of the word diversity and the differences that each individual person brings with them. Our goal should be inclusivity, not diversity. How do we do this? Well, first, learn and understand our intersectionalities based on the theory of intersectionality, which explains that no one is one thing all at once. These experiences come with their own oppression or privilege. The next thing is as white people, we must own our own whiteness, get used to calling ourselves white, and that we were taught a very specific history in school to uphold whiteness as power and greatness. Then we learn the social construct about what we have assigned to that meaning and breathe into it. And then finally, pick one aspect of those intersections that you don't know a lot about. Research it more, learn more, Use social media, books, blogs, podcasts, talk to people, read memoirs, all of the things. And then once you know and understand that one, pick another thing. Know better and then do better. Number four, and this is something I just really, really loved that Kristen and her family started at a very at the beginning of their family journey, and that is creating a family-based mission statement. And it's an amazing way to stay grounded in your purpose. It helps you ensure that the decisions that all members of your family make are aligned throughout their lives and that school, work, and play all represent the belief of the amazing entity of a family. She said, when you have a mission statement that is, to us, that simple and fundamental, how you make it work can really be flexible to go with the calling, skills, and talents of each of the individual family members. And as parents, it is our job to model these behaviors for our children and ask the question, how do we adjust what we're doing to serve others? And finally, being a deeper human is so incredibly simple. It's hard, but it's simple. You just listen more deeply, find a thing to love about everyone you meet and soak in the peace and joy that that brings you. So thanks again for listening. We'll talk again real soon. Take care. Thank you.